Okay, um, if you've closed your Bible, it'd be great if you could open it again to Psalm 139. We're going to be referring back to those verses that um, Sharon read to us a few minutes ago. And as you do, I just want to, I guess looking out on a crowds in East Belfast, I don't suspect that many of you have been to Arva. Anyone here been to Arva? Arva is a one, one person, okay, one person has been to Arva. Uh, Arva is a little town in uh, County Cavan, and it's a fairly typical Irish town. Uh, It's got one main street. Thank you for turning down the lights. It's got one main street. Uh, It's got a couple of shops, a pharmacy, a filling station, two pubs. Uh, Pretty typical Irish town, okay? Uh, And if you were to visit it, it's not very special. But just on the outskirts of the town is a signpost. Uh, And the signpost marks the spot, the unique spot in Ireland where three provinces meet. Ulster, Connacht and Leinster. And tourists actually travel to Arva to stand at that sign, to get down on all fours so they can have two feet in two different provinces, a hand in another, and wave with the remaining one with a big smile on their face and be in three places at the one time. Okay? Three places at the one time. And I think the fact that people make the journey to Arva with nothing in it, with nothing in it, uh, shows that we're all aware, we're all aware of the fact that because we have a human body, we're limited to one place, being in one place at one time. And it's amusing, it's amusing that that little signpost seems to mark a spot where there's a loophole, right? Where there's a loophole, where you can be in three places at the one time. But we know that's just not really true. Only a bit of you is in three places at the one time. You get the idea. Because we are physical, We've got a body, and our, our spirit is tethered to our body. You can only be in your current location and nowhere else. That's what it means to be a human being. We can only be in one place at the one time. And because we have a body, we've got very set limits. We've got very set limits. Uh, depending on your height, you are limited to what you can see when you're in a crowd. Depending on your body mass index, you're limited in the amount of water you can displace when you jump in a swimming pool. Okay? We're limited. We're limited in all sorts of ways. And one of the ways that we're uniquely limited is because we have a body, we are limited to being in only one location at one time only. So you are in one room at the moment and only one room. Okay? Get the idea. Um, Now, I came across a little story this week that highlights the fact that that God is not like that. God is not like that. The little story is about a little boy in a Christian elementary school in the States. And so in this little Christian school, uh, all the kids were lined up at lunchtime along the counter in the, the cafeteria. And at the end of the counter, there was a basket with a pile of apples in it. And the canteen lady had written on the little, a little note on top of the apples, which read, Take only one. God is watching. 
right? Take only one. God is watching. And then there was big lines of tables where they could go and sit. And at the end of each line of tables was a a big plate with lots of cookies on it. Uh, And one little boy was asked why he took five cookies but only one apple. And he quite simply said, you can take as many cookies as you want. God's watching the apples. (laughs) Okay? And you see his assumption, his assumption is God's like us. God is, if God is over there, or at least his attention is over there, then that means he's not over here, okay? But scripture is very, very clear. God is not like that. God is not like that. And it's not even that God is really, 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 really big um, and is playing, and that's why the, the picture is behind me. It's not that like God is really, really, really big uh, and really dexterous, that he can play this massive cosmic game of twister. He can be everywhere at the one time. No, that's not the idea. It's not that he's really big, but it's this idea that God is all present wherever he is. God is all present everywhere. God is all present everywhere. Theologians use the word omnipresent. Omnipresent, and the little bit at the beginning of that word, omni, simply means all, all. And so in Dundonald, in Dundonald, we have the Omniplex. That's the place where all the screens are, where all the latest movies are shown. And what the Bible teaches, what theologians have shown us and reminded us, us, us of, is that God is fully present everywhere. It's not just a little bit of him is present here. He is fully present here. Um, in this little book that we have used to both, it's both been an inspiration and accompanying this little series, uh, summer series on God's attributes, uh, Jen Wilkins helpfully summarizes it like this. He, that is God, is not engaged in some cosmic game of twister, trying to stretch himself between an infinite number of locations Rather than a small part of him occupying each place he inhabits, all of God is present everywhere, all the time. All of God is present everywhere, all the time. Or as one um, old theologian put it, heaven is his palace, but not his prison. Heaven is his palace. It is his base of operations. It is the place where his his worship is most pure. Uh, But God is not constrained or limited uh, in heaven. Uh, He is all present, everywhere, all the time. And I guess what I want to do is I want to try to explain that idea a little bit uh, this morning. And I want to convince you, I want to try to convince you, that that idea that God is all fully present, all present everywhere, all the time, is a wonderful comfort, but also a great challenge. A wonderful comfort and a great challenge. What I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to explain this idea of our all-present God using Psalm 139, and then I want to think about our appropriate response. So our all-present God and then our appropriate response. 
so if you've closed your Bible, can you open it again to Psalm 139? And I guess what I want you to see is this, this idea of God's omnipresence, him being fully present everywhere all the time. Uh, it's not just a clever philosophical notion thought up by theologians. No, it's actually something presented in the Bible. It's an idea presented in the Bible for our comfort uh, and uh, as a great uh, challenge to us as well. And in this psalm, in this ancient song uh, of King David, he doesn't just state the truth coldly. This is not just a textbook and a definition. Uh, What you have here is a beautiful poem where David uses all sorts of pictures and metaphors to stretch our imagination so that we feel awe and wonder and joy and challenge of this idea that God is all present everywhere. And one of the ways that David does this, specifically in sentence number seven through to sentence number 12, uh, is that he uses three contrasts that stretch our imagination a bit. Uh, I'm going to read those verses again. And as I read them, I want you to see if you can spot the three contrasts that David uses. So verse seven Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise in the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light becomes, uh, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Three contrasts then that David uses to convey the idea that God is omnipresent. The first contrast he uses is in verses 7 and 8. The idea of the contrast of height and depth. Height and depth. If I go up to the heavens, if I make my bed in the depths. First, if I go up to the heavens. Now, David didn't know anything about space travel uh, back in uh, the ancient Near East. Uh, But he's effectively saying, he's effectively saying, imagine if I qualified for the NASA space program uh, and I got to wear the big white suit and I went to Cape Canaveral and I got on a, a, a space shuttle And I was blasted off into space, through the Earth's atmosphere, out into outer space of darkness. Even there, the Lord would already be there. If I could travel to worlds that the Hubble Space Telescope hasn't yet seen, even there. God would already be there. I cannot go to the greatest heights I can imagine and outrun God. He is already there. Or if I go down to the depths, if I go down to the depths, if I went down to uh, in a submarine and I went down to the Marianas Trench, 
in the Pacific Ocean, the deepest spot on planet Earth, which amazingly is six miles under the surface of the water, six miles down. Even I could travel down there, God would already be there. God would already be there. David's actually going further than that. Um, Not only is he saying physically height and depth, the actual word, the NIV is not all that, our English translation here is not all that helpful. The word for depth that David actually uses here is the word Sheol. Sheol. And in, in the ancient Jews, that was the word they used for the place of the dead. That's where everybody went when they died. Their spirit went when they died. The shadowy underworld. If you are a watcher of Stranger Things and Netflix, you might have some sort of conflict of what that dark, shadowy world might look like. Um, David is saying, it's not just physically if I go up or I go down, God's already there. Even if I go to the place of the dead, God is still there. God is with me. He will be with me when I breathe my last breath. And he will be with me after I breathe my last breath. And I think that's an incredible comfort. It's meant to be an incredible comfort. Some of us in this room have lost loved ones this year. And it's very painful. It's very painful to have lost loved ones. But if those loved ones have put their trust in the Lord Jesus... God was with them when they died and he will be with them right now. You are separated from them but nothing can tear them away from the presence of God, not even death itself. Or David put it more famously in another song, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Nothing can separate us from God. Not height, not depth, not life, and not even death can separate you from God. So the first contrast then, height or depth, nothing can separate you from him. Second contrast he uses is this idea of the wings of the dawn and the other side of the sea. Well, Imagine David is writing in ancient Israel, in the land of Israel. The sun rises, the dawn is in the east. And if you're in Israel, the great sea is on your west. The great sea is on your west. So David is saying, if I travel from one horizon to beyond the other horizon, if I could travel on the wings of the dawn, if I could travel at the speed of light, from one horizon to beyond the other horizon, I could never travel far enough or fast enough to outrun God. He will always be there by my side to grab hold of me. Is that not what, you know, many of us know the story of of Jonah? Is that not exactly what Jonah found? No matter how far or how fast he tried to travel, he could not outrun God. He was there to hold him tight. No matter where you go, God is already by your side and always by your side. And again, I think that's meant to be an incredible comfort. 
as you change job, if you change house, move house, if you move country, if you move into, as we were thinking with our students a few moments ago, if you move into a whole new stage of life with all the, the anxieties associated with all of those things, it's a wonderful comfort to remember that God is right by your side. He is closer to you than the air on your skin. He's closer to you than the air on your skin. He is always by your side. Uh, the Apostle Paul uh, put it like this in a, in a, in a sermon he gave uh, in the town of Athens. In Acts chapter 17, we read it, but he said this, He is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. God is fully present everywhere. We cannot outrun him. We cannot evade him. He is everywhere. It's worth putting in just one distinction at this point. Um, the Bible, although it says we, in him we live and move and have our being, we do not want to think that God is just in all of creation. He is, but he is also separate from his creation and not constrained in any way by the world that he has made. But what we're meant to see here is neither height nor depth, death, cannot separate you from God. Uh, East or west, distance cannot separate you from God. And then thirdly, darkness and light. Darkness cannot separate us from God. There's a famous commentator, uh, writer, uh, on this songbook of the Bible, the book of Psalms. His name is Derek Kidner, and he's written extensively on the Psalms. And he gives a brilliant suggestion uh, on uh, verses 11 and 12. He suggests that this, this idea of darkness is connected to our Eden-old desire to run away and hide from God. That's really the idea that's expressed by this picture of darkness. I remember when I was, uh, when I was a child uh, staying with my cousins, what we would often do is play what we called ultimate hide and seek. Okay, ultimate hide and seek. We waited to the, the night time. Uh, we closed all the curtains, turned off all the lights in the house. We played hide and seek then in pitch blackness. So you had to go and hide, find a, the best place to hide in the darkness. And the person trying to find you had a torch and they had to find you in the darkness. And usually when you were found, uh, you would scream your head off uh, when you were found. Uh, I'm sure probably for health and safety reasons and child protection reasons, you're probably not allowed to play a game like that anymore. But I did. Um, and really that's coming close to the idea that we get here uh, in, this, in this song. Uh, Jesus himself uh, expressed a very similar idea uh, in his conversation with Nicodemus. Uh, he said, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light, because their deeds are evil. It's said that every single person has, lives three lives. Every single person lives three lives. You live a public life, you live a private life, 
and then you live a, sec- a secret life. Everybody does it. Public life, private life, secret life. And what David is saying here is, although we all have that little voice inside our heads that says, no, this is mine. Stay away. This is just for me. I'm going to do this. This is a little private space in your universe that I'm going to live and do what I want. David is saying God comes along with his torch. And he says, I found you. I found you. I can see what you're doing. And you see how this idea of God being omnipresent is both a wonderful comfort, but here we see it's a big challenge. It's a big challenge. Because that means, if that's, this is true, and God is fully present everywhere, then that means in reality, no matter what you say, no matter what you do, no matter what you think, you do before an eyewitness all the time. That's a challenge, isn't it? You do it before an eyewitness all the time. God is all present everywhere. And I think that means, I think that means uh, that we should realize that there's both a wonderful comfort and a great challenge. Our all-present God. That's a, I've only begun to sketch out what the Bible teaches on this idea, but how should we respond for the next couple of moments? How should we respond? Our appropriate response. It's a great comfort. It's a great challenge. Three things, very briefly. Three things as our response. Number one, we should enjoy our access. We should enjoy our access to God. If this truth uh, is real, then... Contrary to what many people think, there's lots of people out there that think if you need, want to connect with God, if you want to connect with God, you need to go to a special place. You need to go to a cathedral, you need to go to a church, you need to go to a religious site. Uh, perhaps even in evangelical circles, you need to be part of sung worship. You need to go and hear a really great speaker, a celebrity speaker, and they will usher you into the presence of God in some special way. Here we see that we are not restricted like that. We are not restricted. We have access to God all the time, everywhere. Access to God all the time, everywhere. That means if you are in distress, in your work, in your family, under pressure, under real strain, then that means you can cry out anywhere, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Because he's by your side. If you are having wonderful joy and delight, you've received your heart's desire, no matter where you are when that happens, you can say, thank you, Lord. And he hears you because he's by your side. If you're in the middle of temptation, you're about to say that cruel word, you're about to neglect that person, you're about to click on that image, in that moment, wherever you are when that happens, you can say, Lord, help me, and he'll hear you, because he's by your side. 
we have wonderful access to God, unconstrained uh, in every way. But the truth is, I think if we're honest, I don't think we always feel we have that access, do we? We don't always feel as if we're in the presence of God. There's lots of things seem to get in the way of that. Why is it that many people feel they better connect with God when they're out having a walk in nature? Or some people feel a sense of the presence of God when they get up early in the morning, when everything's quiet, when the children are still in bed. Is it because God is not really a city person and he likes the countryside more? Is it because God's a morning person, not really an evening person? Why do you think that is? You see, what I want to suggest to you is the issue is not God. The issue is you and me. The issue is you and me. God is with us all the time. But we don't feel it so much of the time. And we are the issue, not God. There's a great quote I came across this week by a guy called John Mark Comer, pastor, writer. And he said, this feeling that most of us have of separation from God is a legitimate feeling. But it is a mental and emotional illusion created by distraction and our disordered loves. The reality is that there is nowhere that God is not. And so if we want to increasingly feel the presence of God, then perhaps we need to make time. We need to make time to open his word and to read it, to pray to him without any distractions. Whatever works for you, if it's a walk in the countryside works best for you or it's getting up early in the morning or late at night, wherever it is, we need to practice this idea of making space for God without distraction to recenter ourselves uh, and to reorder our loves properly. And when we do that, another writer says, you will discover that God does not know how to be absent. God does not know how to be absent. When we draw close to God without distraction, we will discover that God draws close to us. And so we should enjoy the access that we've got. Second, we should embrace our limits. Enjoy our access. Embrace our limits. I touched on this at the very, very beginning of this little series where we talked about God being infinite. But I think it's worth mentioning it again. Again, I suppose it's because I have personally been challenged uh, by this over the summer. Uh, And I think there's one little thing that almost, it doesn't audibly do it, but it sort of whispers a little lie to you that it is possible to be present in more than one place at one time. And that little thing is this, your phone, your phone. I think it whispers the lie to you. It's possible to be in more than one place at one time. Think about it for a moment. You could be at home sitting on the sofa, communicating with someone on the other side of the globe while ordering dinner, while commenting on a blog, while writing a tweet, while liking an Instagram post, while 
bidding on something on eBay all at the one time. I came across uh, a letter uh, written by uh, Jim Elliott that he wrote home. He was a famous missionary and was martyr on the mission field. Uh, but he wrote a letter home and to his sister. And there's just one phrase in the letter that's echoed in my mind all week. And that's this. He said to her, wherever you are, be all there. Wherever you are, be all there. Accept your limit. Embrace your limits. You can't be everywhere. So where you are, be all there. Be all there. And so I think, you may disagree, feel free to disagree with me, but I think if it's true that God is omnipresent, fully present everywhere all the time, and I am not, that's not possible for me, then maybe one thing I can do to reflect that, to embrace that, is when I meet with someone face-to-face, I tried it this week for the first time, whenever I was meeting someone face-to-face, to turn my phone off, fully off, and set it down. To be all there. I challenge you this week, if you're with co- meeting someone for coffee, tur- take your phone out, turn it off, and set it down. Do not take your phone to family dinner. Turn it off. Be all there. Be all there. Because relationships only flourish when we're face to face. Yes, we can sus- keep them going, trundling along uh, by virtual contact. But if we really want them to deepen and grow and flourish, we need face, prolonged face-to-face contact where we're all there. Again, Jen Wilkins puts it beautifully, I think, in her little book. Complete, relation, complete relational joy occurs face-to-face in shared space when we truly care about depth of communication and leave as little physical room for misunderstanding and distraction as possible. Where you are, be all there. You're not God. Embrace it. Lastly, and very briefly, embrace your repentance. Embrace your repentance. Enjoy your access. Uh, Embrace your limits. And then lastly, express your repentance, express your repentance. Because this idea of God being all present everywhere all the time is both a wonderful comfort, but also it's a humbling challenge for us. Because the flip side of our wonderful access is our profound accountability to him. Our profound accountability. Uh, If God is fully present everywhere, then we have an eyewitness to everything we say and think and do. I came across the story of the NFL um, running back, a guy called Ray Rice, who played for uh, the Baltimore Ravens. Back in 2014, he was in a casino in Atlantic City, and while traveling up in the lift, he punched his wife so hard that he knocked her clean out and had to drag her by the heels back to his room. Now, he was sure no one, because he was in the lift alone, he was sure no one had seen him. But the truth was that the CCTV camera was on. And when those who saw it leaked it to 
TMZ online magazine, they posted the footage. And within a couple of days, he was arrested for assault and battery. Uh, he was charged, and charged with that. Uh, he lost his career because the Baltimore Ravens immediately terminated his contract. Someone was watching, and the camera doesn't lie. Someone was watching. But what we see in this passage is that more reliable than any camera is that God is an eyewitness to everything that we say and think and do. Uh, God speaking to the prophet Jeremiah said this, I am, sorry, am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. We have an eyewitness for everything we say and think and do. Just glance down to the, the, the closing verses as we conclude. The closing verses of this song, verses 19 to uh, 22. David is well aware that God sees everything, that he is eyewitness to what everybody does and thinks and says all the time. And that means David can call out for God to be the judge then, confident that he'll be the righteous judge. Many people, however, find these words difficult. Some would go as far as saying disgusting and barbaric. Listen to them again. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them and count them as my enemies. That's pretty hard to read, isn't it? That's pretty hard to read. And yet David is well aware that he does not live in a sugar-coated world. He lives in a world where there's real evil, where domestic violence is a real horrific thing. And can I say, if there's any men here who have done that, then you need to repent and you need to stop. Domestic violence is a real thing. We live in a world where, we live in a world where, I just read a horrific story this week of a teenage girl with the help of her boyfriend murdered her mother and then stayed in the house to watch a movie and eat ice cream. We live in a world where, I've just another story reading this week of, of some young women who converted to Christianity were murdered by their own brothers as an honor killing. We live in a world where evil's a real thing. Don't be naive. David is well aware, and David wants evil to be punished and justice to be done. And that's right. That's, that's actually a good instinct, a good impulse. But then David's left with a dilemma. <laughs> David's left with a dilemma. Because you see, if we're truly honest with ourselves, we know that evil's not just something out there. Well, there's all sorts of bad people out there. Uh, but evil is in here, isn't it? So verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. If there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. 
the, there's a great Russian writer called Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Um, he was a, a writer, author, novelist, but profound critic of the communist regime back in the 40s and 50s. And he was sent off to the, the, the work camps and treated awfully, treated awfully, uh, horribly abused, treated with great injustice. And yet he could say, like David, he could say this, the dividing line between good and evil runs straight through the human heart. The dividing line between good and evil runs straight through the human heart. In other words, just like David, he recognizes evil is not just out there that particularly bad people do. We are all evil. We are all flawed. God has witnessed in our speech and in our thoughts and in our actions those things that are offensive to him. That is a fact for each and every one of us here. And this psalm leaves us hanging. It just leaves us hanging. What are we going to do with that? But of course this psalm is a song that sits in a bigger book, doesn't it? A bigger book where another king, not King David, but King Jesus came. And wonderfully there's hope for people like you and me. Because in the Lord Jesus, in King Jesus, God who is infinite in space confined himself to one human body, lived the life that we should have lived and took the penalty for all our offensive ways on himself on the cross so that we might be forgiven. We might be totally pardoned for everything that we've done, said and thought that is wrong, whether we've done it in public, in private, or in secret. And that's what we celebrate now as we come to this table. We celebrate that although we are exposed before God, although he knows all that we have done, even the things that we're not aware of that were wrong, we can be fully forgiven. We can be fully forgiven. And one day we will enjoy the full, unshielded glory of the presence of God forever in the new heaven and the new earth. And so we come now to this table. We're going to take a moment just to say, conscious that God is here, conscious that God is here with us, we're going to say sorry. Say sorry together. Uh, And we're going to then say thank you. Thank you that even someone as offensive as me can be fully forgiven and can enjoy your favorable presence forever. So before we share in bread and wine, we're going to pray.